Okay, as we continue our Juneteenth celebration show, it is a great pleasure to be having as a special guest tonight, William A. Darity Jr. He is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African American Studies and Economics at Duke University. Recently, him and his co-author, Kirsten Mullen, published the groundbreaking book, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century. Dr. Darity will address both common myths that are mistakenly promoted to describe the why behind these profound inequalities that we described in part one of the show, but also will outline solution-oriented approaches that are more fully explicated in his groundbreaking book, From Here to Equality. Dr. Darity, thank you so much. Welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, let me ask you. It appears that what you and your co-author, Kirsten Mullen, compellingly argue is that the overwhelming elephant in the room or immovable object, if you will, that entrench this racial wealth divide that we explicated in part one of inequality and a reflection of this kind of structural inequality in our country that has disproportionately exploited black Americans throughout our history. First, as you detail in your book, it was slavery, then it was Jim Crow laws, and evolving now and today as a result of multiple forms of discrimination, including greater victimization of police brutality as evidenced by the fact that black men are 2.5 times more likely than white men to be killed by police. That was according to an August 2019 research from the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This racial wealth divide and other forms of discrimination have hardened into a seemingly impossible obstacle to gaining an equal level playing field for blacks. So what I would like to first off is again pay tribute to George Floyd. It's been a week and a half since the May 25th George Floyd death, or murder, I should say, that occurred at the hands of the Minneapolis police. The one thing I wanted to first turn our attention to is there are a number of widely held myths that you present compelling evidence to dispute in your book, other research articles that you, along with Derek Hamilton and others, have researched. And I wanted you to walk through some of that for us. I mean, we think about, I think about even President Obama, who often refers to, in his last term, to the personal behavior of African Americans regarding personal responsibility issues. And explicitly in these readings, there's more and more evidence that seem to suggest that it has very little to do with personal responsibility, but rather a structured inequality that Anglos do not proportionally face. Can you elaborate on some of the most common myths that you think people should reevaluate? So black-white wealth inequality is a legacy effect of the cumulative intergenerational impact of racial injustice in the United States. And so today, black Americans constitute about 13% of the nation's population, but possess about 2.6% of the nation's wealth. That translates into a situation in which the average black household has $800,000 less in net worth than the average white household. And it's important to distinguish between wealth and income. Income, which is a flow concept, is directly linked to people's employment and earnings, at least in, in most cases. But wealth, on the other hand, is a stock concept. It's the difference between what you own and what you owe. It's the difference between your assets and your liabilities, or another way to talk about it is to describe wealth as 
the net value of your personal property. And this is something that's a far superior indicator of economic well-being. It provides you with the capacity to survive emergency. For example, an individual family member who's the breadwinner might lose their job. Well, for a wealthier household, there's a much greater capacity to maintain their standard of living and to not be as anxious as a consequence of the job loss. Similarly, you could have uh, an impact on, on, on a household's income that's associated with having to deal with a medical emergency. Wealthier families have a greater capacity to purchase homes and to purchase high-equity homes. They also can buy their way into high-amenity neighborhoods. They can take risks in terms of trying to start up a business or to own a business in ways in which uh, any kind of failure can be absorbed more gently. They can make sure that their kids have uh, an opportunity to get quality schooling, and they can leave bequests for subsequent generations. So wealth is a, is a much more important indicator of economic status than income. And wealth, unlike income, is not driven by employment and earnings. It's driven by the cross-generational transmission of resources and economic security. And so if we start thinking about the racial wealth divide, it finds its origins in the aftermath of the Civil War, when the formerly enslaved were promised 40-acre land grants, but then were denied that promise. At the same time, uh, many, many white Americans were receiving what we might describe as significant government handouts in the form of 160-acre land grants in the western part of the United States under the various Homestead Acts. And so we have a divide that emerges immediately after the Civil War because no restitution is provided to the formerly enslaved and substantial land grants are provided to many white Americans. We argue in From Here to Equality that what is required to eliminate the racial wealth gap is a reparations program that provides a direct route to erasure of the black-white wealth divide. And we think that this is entirely morally and ethically mandated because the reasons for the wealth divide are not are not a matter of individual or family-level behavior on the part of black Americans. So, for example, when black folks do the right thing, they don't get the right outcome in terms of their wealth position. Black heads of households with a college degree have two-thirds of the net worth of white heads of households who never finished high school. A black family that has two parents, so presumably maybe a husband-wife family, but, but a two-parent family nonetheless, has 2.3 times less wealth than the average white family where there's only a single parent. Black families or black heads of households who are working full-time have less wealth than white heads of household who are unemployed. And that's, that's a particularly striking statistic in the midst of a situation where the economy is hurtling towards a 20% unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. So our argument is that if we think about the racial wealth gap as something that is a structural phenomenon, then we have to have a structural response. And that structural response should be a reparations program. So basically what you're arguing, and you provide evidence, and, and actually there was also a, a 2018 report that was co-authored by Derek Hamilton as well as colleagues from, the, from your Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke. It was entitled, What We Get Wrong About Closing the Racial Wealth Gap, 
they took that argument head on as well. And, and, and of course, you were part of that. It said that I think it was Derek Hamilton, or, or at least the paper said, blacks cannot close the racial gap by changing their individual behavior. And then they go on to list uh, and debunk some 10 popular myths about individualized behavior that blacks could take as a group, including like going to college, working harder, buying a house, banking black, saving more, improving financial literacy rates, etc. But your data and research, and again, I want to reiterate that Dr. Darity is an economist, and these conclusions that he he is he is suggesting are based on uh, on hard data of looking at. In one place, I I saw were at the similar place on the wage scale or whatever that black families were saving 1.3 times greater or more than white families and such, and that you know with the college debt that uh, is incurred by going to school, as you've already indicated, and we indicated in the first part of the show, you know, get at, at every level of education, blacks are, have less wealth, significantly less wealth than, uh, than white families. So this is what this term structured inequality, this term of systemic kind of racism, this is really the core of it. And if it can't be changed by personal behavior, what you're suggesting, there must be these fundamental changes, and they would take the form of a reparations program. Does the reparations program include like baby bonds and the federal government job guarantees? Can you, how would you separate that out? Uh, okay, so let me, let me back up a bit. The report that you're describing is one that was written under my leadership for the team. And uh, I'm, I'm certain that Derek Hamilton has made many of these points in other contexts, but he was a member of the research team that produced this, this, this full report. And the full report addresses 10 myths that people hold about why we have this enormous racial wealth divide. Three of those are things that I just mentioned in my remarks. One is the claim that it's because of educational differences, the second is the claim that it's attributable to family structure differences. And the third is the claim that it's due to differences in effort and motivation. And the three pieces of evidence that I provided a moment ago are repudiation of all three of those assertions as to why we have the racial wealth divide. But as you also pointed out, we talk about a lot of other beliefs that people have, that the racial wealth divide ostensibly is because black people don't save as much as white people, or the racial wealth divide is because black people don't, don't spend with black-owned organizations like businesses and banks and the like. So we go through a litany of these in, 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 the, in the report. And I would mention that we demonstrate that these positions are incorrect. You know, as as you pointed out, the actual evidence is if you control for household income, the typical black household spends 1.3 times less than the typical white household. And that lower level of spending for a given level of income is primarily attributable to the fact that the white households have significantly higher levels of wealth at any given level of income. And the central point that we make about buying with black-owned businesses is that uh, black folks really don't have the resources to make black-owned businesses truly viable. So uh, I think frequently people don't realize the magnitude of the difference between the scale and the operation of black-owned businesses versus businesses that are owned primarily by non-black Americans. So, for example, if you were to take all of the five most 
most advanced black-owned banks together collectively. They have about, I, I think, somewhere in the vicinity of a maximum of, uh, of about 300 to 400 billion dollars in assets. If you were to take JP Morgan Chase alone, it, it has, uh, it has two trillion dollars in assets. So there's this enormous gap mm-hmm. between the scale and operation of black businesses and, and, and white owned businesses. And that's not something that can be bridged by incremental policy changes or small policy changes. So when we talk about baby bonds or the federal job guarantee or postal banking or national health insurance, we're talking about proposals that address inequalities across the entire population. These are inequalities that are organic to American life for all Americans. But when we talk about the need for a reparations program, we are talking about a program that specifically targets the inequalities that are more severe that oppress the daily lives of black Americans. And so a black reparations program for black descendants of persons enslaved in the United States is a, a, a separate program from the other types of projects that I put under the rubric of an economic bill of rights for the 21st century, like baby bonds, like a federal job guarantee. I think in the best of all possible worlds, we adopt all of those proposals. They're complementary. They're not substitutes for one another. But that's that's what we need to do going forward. Yeah. So when you look at these, like these tax subsidies that have been explained, where 80% of the tax subsidies are going to white families compared to African-American families, that, that I, I would suggest is a huge number that makes this reparations program a very doable thing if the political will was there. Is that correct? Can you talk just very briefly about the cost of a reparations program? Well, I'm, I'm not certain what the relationship is between the tax subsidies and the reparations program in a direct way. In fact, when I'm talking about the racial wealth gap, I'm actually talking about the gap that exists prior to taxation. Uh, and that that's what needs to be bridged. But I think that the most recent set of, of circumstances associated with the COVID-19 crisis indicates in terms of the speed of the government's response in terms of providing uh, funds to try to address that crisis indicates that the federal government has virtually an unlimited capacity to, to spend. And so I think the old argument about how will you pay for it which is a deflective argument, can be taken off the table altogether. Right. That's what I was trying to get at. I mean, this is like from a, uh, a piece, Race, Wealth, and Taxes, How the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act Supercharges the Racial Wealth Divide. It was put together by the Prosperity Now and Institute of Taxation of Economic Policy back in October of 2018. So I think they were alluding to the 2017 tax package of Donald Trump. But the, oh, yes. but the yes. tax package yes. was heavily skewed towards high-income households were mostly white. It was passed by Congress in December 2017. Of the nearly $275 billion within the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2018, the Prosperity Now studies found that $218 billion, or 80%, was going to white households. So, like you say, the financial capacity is there, right? Yeah, so, so my point was that uh, the, the question of financing reparations is not connected to the question of tax subsidies or tax increases. 
necessarily. That, in fact, you could fund a reparations program without altering anyone's tax rate. Uh, although, although it's probably quite desirable to raise the tax rate on wealthiest on the wealthiest Americans, but how much would it cost? You know, in our book, from here to equality, Kirsten Mullen and I estimate that to eliminate the racial wealth divide would require ten to twelve trillion dollars, and that that should set at the bottom the baseline value that would be associated with the creation of a reparations fund. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, listen, Dr. Dirty, I know that, that you need to take off. Thank you very much for your analysis here. This book that is now available, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, is there, besides just Googling it, how could people access the book that's been authored by uh, you and Kirsten Mullen? So it's published by the University of North Carolina Press, and it's available everywhere books can be purchased, including bookstores. Very good. Well, I have read the book, been studying the book. It is a very important history and documentation of everything that you were alluding to in this broadcast. Dr. Dirty, thank you so much for making time for us today. And we look forward to staying in contact and following your work as the, the weeks and years unfold. It's always a pleasure to come back to bringing light in the darkness. All right, friend. Take good care of yourself. I wanted to end this Bringing Light into Darkness show with two clips that capture the nature of implicit racism in what I hope you will find to be an illuminating manner. Angela Davis wrote, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist, end quote. Ibram X. Kendi, in his book, How to Become an Anti-Racist, writes, strive to become anti-racist is different than claiming I am not racist. He further writes, when someone supports policies that yield and create racial equity, that's being an anti-racist. Therefore, I suspect the opposite must be true as well, that to not actively oppose and expose policies that yield and create racial inequity and the racial wealth divide, that's participating in being part of racist forces. It has been written that implicit bias comes from the messages, attitudes, and stereotypes we pick up from the world we live in. And research over time from different countries shows that it tends to line up with general social hierarchies. Here's an interview with young Muhammad Ali by Michael Parkinson from the UK in an interview on October 10th, 1971, where Muhammad Ali details the messaging that was ubiquitous as he grew up that parallels and unconsciously rationalizes that white is good and black is negative. Give this a humorous listen and consider its power in creating implicit bias. Things are getting much better, but I always wonder when I went to church on Sundays. I've always been one to, I'm not just a boxer. I do a lot of reading, a lot of studying. I ask questions. I go out, travel these countries and watch how their people live and I learn. And I always ask my mother, I said, Mother, how come is everything white? I said, why is Jesus white with blonde and blue eyes? Why is the Lord's <laughs> Supper all white men? Angels are white, Pope and um, Mary and every, even the angels. I said, Mother, when we die, do we go to heaven? She said, naturally, we go to heaven. I said, well, what happened to all the black angels when they took the pictures? <laughs> she, I, said, I said, oh, I know. If the white folks was in heaven, too, then the black angels were in the kitchen preparing the milk and honey. <laughs> 
said, listen, you quit saying that, boy. I was always curious and I always wondered why I had to die to go to heaven. Why I couldn't have pretty cars and good money and nice homes now? Why do I have to wait till I die to get milk and honey? And I said, mama, I don't want no milk and honey. I like steaks and, and I said, milk and honey is a laxative anyway. <laughs> they have a lot of bathrooms in heaven. So anyway, I was always curious. I always wondered why. You know, Tarzan is the king of the jungle in Africa. He was white. <laughs> white man. I saw this white man swinging around Africa with a diaper on, hollering, oh! You all see Tarzan over here? Right. And all the Africans, so he's beating them up and breaking the lion's jaw. And here's Tarzan talking to the animals. And the Africans been there for centuries, and he yet can't talk to the animals. Only Tarzan can talk to the animals. I always wonder why Miss America was always white. All the beautiful brown women in America, beautiful suntans, beautiful shapes, all tight complexions, but she always was white. And Miss World was always white. And Miss Universe was always white. And then they got some stuff called White House cigars, white swan soap, king white soap, white cloud tissue paper, <clears throat> white rain hair rinse, white tornado flow wax. Everything was white. And the angel food cake was the white cake, and the devil food cake was the chocolate cake. <laughs> I said, Mama, why is everything white? I always wondered, you know, and, and the president lived in the White House. <laughs> And Mary had a little lamb, his feet as white as snow, and snow white. And everything was white. Santa Claus was white. And everything bad was black. The little ugly duckling was a black duck. And the black cat was the bad luck. And if I threaten you, I'm going to blackmail you. I said, Mama, why don't they call it white male? They lie too. I was always curious. And then, and this is when I knew something was wrong. Won the Olympic gold medal in Rome, Italy. Olympic champion, the Russian standing right here, and the Pole right here. Is Poland considered a communist country? Yeah. Yeah, I'm defeating America's so-called threats or enemies. And the flag is going, dun, 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 I'm standing so proud. Dun, 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 dun. And I don't hook the world of America. Dun, 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 dun. I took my gold medal, thought I'd invented something. I said, man, I know I'm gonna get my people freedom there. I'm the champion of the whole world, Olympic champion. I know I can eat downtown now. And I went downtown that day, had my big old medal on and went in the restaurants. So at that time, black things weren't integrated. Black folks couldn't eat downtown. And I went downtown, I sat down, and I said, you know, a cup of coffee, uh, hot dog. He said, the lady said, we don't serve Negroes. I'm so mad, I said, I don't eat them either. Just give me a cup of hot dog. I said, I'm the Olympic gold medal. One three days ago, I fought for this country in Rome. I won the gold medal, and I'm going to eat. The manager heard him tell the manager, and she says, he said, well, I'm not the, I'm not the man. Now he's got to go out. Anyway, I didn't raise money. They put me out. And I had to leave that restaurant in my hometown where I went to church and served in their Christianity and fought and daddy fought in all the wars. Just won the gold medal and couldn't eat downtown. I said, something's wrong. Here is what I believe is another form of implicit racism or classism. Notice throughout the demonstrations, following yet another brutal murder of a black man in America, George Floyd, at the hands of law enforcement, there was a huge focus on rioting and vandalism. Whites as well as blacks participated along with certainly criminal elements to some undefined, but I believe lesser degree. The exact composition is not important. As questions abounded, why would anyone burn down their own neighborhood, stores, or police-related entities? 
I must admit that I would not encourage such behavior, but I wanted to share with you a perspective that comes from an experience that because of white privilege, I certainly have never had to endure, namely the other side of structured inequality that day after day, week after week, year after year, generation after generation, life experiences of poverty and discrimination others have faced routinely. The profoundly unlevel playing ground that shapes life experiences in profoundly different directions and degrees. So before or continuing to cast judgment on the quote-unquote looters, listen to the words of Malcolm X describing a very different but important perspective as to why anyone might destroy their own neighborhoods or the property of others, keeping in mind the stark inequalities that have been detailed in the first half of our show tonight, factoids that dispelled the groundless myth that black unequal access to success is based largely on personal irresponsibility. See what you think, and we will see you next week. I was in Africa. I read about them over there. If you'll notice, they referred to the rioters as vandals, hoodlums, thieves. They tried to make it appear. They tried to make it, they, and they, they did this. They skillfully took the burden off the society for its failure to, to uh, correct these negative conditions in the black community. Took, took the burden completely off the society and put it right on the community by using the press to make it appear that the looting and all of this was proof that the whole act was nothing but vandals and robbers and thieves who weren't really interested in anything other than that which was negative. And I, I hear many old, dumb, brainwashed Negroes who parrot the same old party line that the man handed down in his paper. This wasn't, it was not the case that they were just knocking out store windows uh, ignorantly. In Harlem, for instance, all of the stores are owned by white people. All the buildings are owned by white people. The black are paying rent, buying the groceries. But they don't own the stores, the clothing stores, food stores, any kind of store. Don't even own the homes that they live in. This, these are, this is all owned by outsiders. And in these rundown apartment dwellings, the black man in Harlem pays more money for it than the man down in the rich Park Avenue section. It costs us higher, more money to live in the slums then it cost them to live down on Park Avenue. And black people in Harlem know this. And the white merchants charge us more money for food in Harlem. And it's the cheap food. It's the worst food. We have to pay more money for it than the man has to pay for it downtown. So black people know that they're being exploited and that their blood is being sucked and they see no way out of it. So finally when the spark thing is sparked, the white man is not there. He's gone. The merchant is not there, the landlord is not there, the one he considers to be the enemy isn't there. So they knock at his property. This is what makes them knock down the store windows and set fire to things and things of that sort. It's not that they're thieves, but they try and project the image to the public that this is being done by thieves and thieves alone. And they ignore the fact that no, it is not thievery alone. It's a, it's a corrupt, vicious, hypocritical system that has castrated the black man. And the only way the black man can get back at it is to strike it in the only way he knows how.